Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christianity Saturdays. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today is Saturday, September 6, 2014. Tonight, we'll be presenting Primordial 2C Line, Part 1. This installment of Explaining 2C Line, of the Explaining 2C Line series, is called Primordial 2C Line, and it may run, I envision, for at least two and perhaps for three weeks, because we hope to illustrate that many of the myths and legends of the ancient nations related to the ancient Hebrews also correspond to our interpretations of certain things in biblical literature. I've been wanting to compile certain things from ancient inscriptions and the many other books which I have read over the last 15 years and still have not had the appropriate occasion to do so as comprehensively as I would like. However, I have extracted some of, some of the pertinent material and will begin to present it here. As I get time, I hope to extract more and present that here as well for this series. Perhaps the resulting notes can be the basis for a more formal writing. There are many Egyptian, Mesopotamian, and when I say Mesopotamian, I mean Sumerian, Akkadian, and Babylonian. Many of their myths are common. And later, Greek myths and legends which fit into the depictions of prehistoric times which we see portrayed in the Bible, or which fit into certain paradigms which interpreters of Scripture have noticed in the Bible. However, we, we must be careful as to how we interpret these myths and legends, just as we must take care in the interpretation of Scripture. So many foolish men would attempt to use the similarities in the myths of the surrounding nations to discredit Scripture. However, once it is understood that the peoples in question were all at one time of the same race, and that they all had the same primeval origins, and that they became separated by language and geography over a relatively short period of, of time, as the biblical account in Genesis chapter 11 itself informs us, and that this separation occurred before any resilient literature had accumulated, then it can also be realized that originally they had many of the same basic concepts about creation and the world around them as well as a similar understanding of their own physical and spiritual fabric. But while the ancient myths of creation and man had many things in common from one Adamic nation to another. There are also many things which are different, and we must realize that in the ancient poetry, it was not only used to convey cultural information, but poetry was also used to be entertaining. And therefore, it is evident that each of the various nations developed countless embellishments on the ancient lore. Back when I had begun to read the Greek myths, 
by which I had endeavored to glean historical information, because all of the earliest Greek writing is actually myths and poems, I quickly realized that the myths contained a lot of cultural information, which had to have either an origination in the Bible or in another source which had a common origin with the biblical accounts. The most striking tales, of course, are the battles between the gods and giants or the titans or the casting out of the serpent out of heaven by the gods. Those myths are profound because they readily invoke images of Genesis chapter 6 or Revelation chapter 12. And that is where we shall start with this presentation. But not in the writings of the Greeks. Rather, we shall start in Egypt. First, I have to offer a few comments concerning what we know of the, of the Egyptian religion. Since there is no ancient book of Egyptian religion, we must glean what we have from inscriptions. And most of the surviving inscriptions are found on pyramids or other structures such as dedications or in funerary texts, which are also found in other places such as in sarcophagi coffins or on papyri which have been buried in certain objects. The dating of those papyri is very important to the understanding of Egyptian religion because Egyptian religion, as Egypt became an empire and then later was overrun by the Nubians, Egyptian religion went through many permutations. Many will ask, but what about the Book of the Dead? But that book is not really a book. It's a loose collection of these same texts that I'm talking about. And there is no canon for ancient Egyptian religion. The Book of the Dead, and we'll be quoting that tonight, the Book of the Dead itself is only a collection of different mortuary texts and pyramid inscriptions found in Egypt. No different from what we find in the primary source we're going to use here tonight, which is ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, edited by James B. Pritchard and published by Princeton University Press in 1969. The inscriptions supplied in this volume have a better explanation of their provenance than some of the publications which call themselves the Book of the Dead. We have cited this volume extensively in many of our earlier presentations on ancient writings, such as the Assyrian inscriptions and the Babylonian inscriptions having to do with the conquest of ancient Israel and Judah, the, um, the Moabite stone. It, it's, it's an excellent book, which is a collection of inscriptions that have to do with all phases of biblical literature in the Old Testament, and it's a valuable resource to have them all in one place. However, it does not represent all of the inscriptions of the ancient world, most of which, from what I understand, haven't even been translated. There are so many, especially the Assyrian. The, um, 
as a side note, the American School of Oriental Research actually has, um, I have 300 PDF books of Assyrian inscriptions from them that, that I'll probably never get the time to read, although I do peruse them from time to time at my leisure. The following is from a section of ancient Near Eastern texts entitled Egyptian Myths, Tales, and Mortuary Texts, translated by John A. Wilson. While we do not want a complete review of the Egyptian creation myths by any means, here we shall present and discuss a few pertinent passages which are seen here tonight. From a pyramid text which recalls a part of the Egyptian creation account, and the introduction to the text says, and I quote, the following text served ritual of a royal pyramid by recalling the first creation when the god was on a primeval hillock arising out of the waters of chaos. This is... Um, very similar to Greek mythology, where Zeus is said to have created the other gods before the creation of man. In like manner, the god is now asked to bless the rising pyramid, an analog of the hillock, the hill where the creation supposedly took place. The text was carved inside the pyramids of Mer, Mere, and Pepi II, or Neferkare of the 6th dynasty. This is from the 24th century BC, from which the following translation is made. Parts of the text were popular in later times to promote the immortality of individuals. That's the introduction to the text. From the text of the inscription, and we will also read some of the provided notes and make a few of our own, I'm sure, O Atom Kepreer, thou wast on high on a primeval hill. Thou didst arise as the ben bird of the ben stone. The word ben is left untranslated. In the ben house in Heliopolis, the god of Heliopolis was compounded of two phases of the sun, Atom and Kepreer later called Aram and Ray. The sanctuary at Heliopolis had a stone of sacred recognition, the Ben-Ben stone. Associated with this stone was a bird, which was much later taken as the phoenix. This part of the text is full of plays on words, such as Weben, Arise, and Ben-Bird, etc. Thou didst spit out what was Shu, thou didst sputter out what was Tethmud, and the creation of Shu, who was the god of the air, and of Tethnut, goddess of moisture, was seen as an explosive sneeze of sorts. Thou didst put thy arms about them as the arms of a Ka, for, their, for thy Ka was in them, 
And the Ka, the word is left untranslated throughout these inscriptions, the Ka was the alter ego or the guardian spirit or the vital life force of a personality. It was the spirit, as we understand it, from the Bible. In pictographs, it was depicted as sheltering arms. The creator god, Atom, put his own vital life force into his first creatures. Back to the inscription. So also, O Atom, put now thy arms about King Neferkare, about this construction work, about this pyramid, as the arms of a Ka, because that's the way the spirit life force was depicted. For the Ka of King Neferkare is in it, enduring for the course of eternity. O Atom, mayest thou set thy protection over this king, Neferkare, over this, this his pyramid and this construction work of King Neferkare. Mayest thou guard lest anything happen to him evilly throughout the course of eternity, as thou did set thy protection over Shu and Tefnut, O great Eniad. Eniad sort of means the nine, which is in Heliopolis, Atom, Shu, Tefnut, Geb, Nut, Osiris, Isis, Seth, and Nephthys, the first nine gods of the Greek pantheon, I'm sorry, of the Egyptian pantheon, the great Ennead, are here given in their four generations. First, Aton, the creator, then Shu and Tefnut, the gods of the air and moisture, Geb, the god of earth, Nut, the goddess of the sky, the god Osiris and the goddess Isis, the god Seth, and the goddess Nephthys, whom Atom begot, spreading wide his heart in joy at his beginning, you and your name of the nine bows. Now the nine bows were the nine traditional potential enemies of Egypt. So there was a play on words, a play on the nine gods and the nine bows here. The magic of the spell, because this is a magic spell, supposedly protected against the potential enmity of the gods, which represent, re represented each of the nine bows, or the enemies of Egypt. May there be none of you who will separate himself from Atom. In other words, the Egyptians believed that if the surrounding nations stayed with their god, that they would have no problems from those nations. As he protects the king, Neferkare, as he protects this pyramid of King Neferkare, as he protects this his construction work from all gods and from all dead, as he guards lest anything happen to him evilly through the course of eternity. So we see that the dead are, are, are a threat, and, and they have four of the dead really aren't dead. They're just not here on earth. They're just not alive, meaning, meaning living and breathing in this world. The purpose of reading this is to lay a basic foundation of understanding of the Egyptian religion. The creator god was Atom, and the possible phonetic association 
with Adam is not overlooked, but that is a separate study. <coughs> Atum was also called Atum Ray, and Ray represented both the sun and the sun god, seen as elements of the creator. The first personalities created in the Egyptian pagan viewpoint were gods, and those gods also represented elements. So it may be perceived that the first gods are mere personifications of the elements, as we find later in Greek and Roman mythology, that each of the first gods had various elements, sciences, arts, or other entities under their peculiar dominion. One difference we shall see is that in Egyptian mythology, these first gods and goddesses were also said to have a hand in the balance of creation, but they were also seen as parts of the body of the creator, and that body was the immediate family of the creator. So we see that same paradigm in, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, where the, the body of Christ are the children of Israel considered to be the family of God. These gods, as well as men, were said to have had the ka, or the vital spiritual life force of the creator God, Atom, instilled in them. It can be perceived here that the ka portion of elements and men was perceived as being immortal and the ka of man would live beyond the flesh of his body. What we also see here is that the works of men were perceived as being instilled with the ka of the man who conceived them. And, and that's explicitly stated here, this pyramid, that it had the ka of this king. And that they too, the works of man, would be eternal if they had the blessing of the creator God. That did not work out too well for any of the pharaohs. Note the name of this pharaoh, nefer ka -re. The word Nefer seems to mean beautiful. And Ka, the spirit, and Re, one of the, the, the epithets or names for the god, are all suffixed, where the name is certainly an appellation which seems to have a vain meaning. From another text, which survives as part of what we now know as the Book of the Dead. And the introduction to the, to the text says, and I quote, an ancient Egyptian's title to eternal happiness was often asserted by associating him with various superhuman forces, including the greatest gods of the land. Thus, he secured their invincible immortality. The following extract from the popular 17th chapter of the Book of the Dead sets the deceased Egyptian in juxtaposition with the creator god, Atom, implicitly securing renewed creation of life. The text was used all over Egypt for many centuries. The following translation is taken from the 18th to 21st dynasties version of the Book of the Dead, which would date it from about 1500 down to 1000 BC in that period. The text goes back at least as far as the Middle Kingdom 
circa 2000 BC, when it was inscribed in the coffins of nobles. By the 18th dynasty, the text had been amplified with explanatory and confirmatory glosses. 18th dynasty started sometime after 750 BC. From the text of the inscription, with some of the provided notes, I will quote, the beginning of exaltations and beatifications going up and down in the necropolis, being an effective spirit in the beautiful West. The Greek psalm, I'm, I'm sorry, that the Egyptians made many references to the spirits of the deceased in the beautiful West. The Greeks believed that the, um, the deceased, if they lived a, a, a um, especially noble life, went to the Isles of the Blessed, which were in the Western Sea. And that was an early Greek belief. So, so it, very much similar to this Egyptian belief, right? Being in the retinue of Osiris, being satisfied with the food of Wen-Nafer, Wen-Nafer seems to mean eternally good or eternal good. It was an epithet for Osiris. The spell for coming forth, the magic spell which enables the dead to come forth from the tomb, by day, assuming any forms that he may wish to assume, playing at the drought board, sitting in the arbor, and coming forth as a living soul. Now, there's a, there's a letter here, and, and it's X, right? And, and that's because at X, or blank, I could have written fill in the blank, right? At X the name and title of the deceased is inserted because this is a magical incantation in pagan Greek in pagan Egyptian religion. I'm sorry. And coming forth as a living soul by X, fill in the blank, after he moors and moors, M-O-O-R-S, Mors is a euphemism for dying. It, could have, it should have been after he dies in the translation. It is a benefit to him who may do it on earth. There is a promise of benefit to any living person who recite, recites this spell on the behalf of a dead person. So they would fill in that X with the name of the dead person and give this incantation as a spell outside of their tomb or grave. It is a benefit to him who may do it on earth when the speech of the Lord of all, Ray, the creator God, Atom Ray, or Atom, was seen as the Lord of all. When the speech of the Lord of all takes place, I am Atom. When I was alone in none, none was the waters of chaos, none is also seen as one of the gods. None was the waters of chaos out of which life was said to arise. Now you know where um, the Jew Carl Sagan got it from, right? I am Ray in his first appearances when he began to rule that which he had made, 
So we see the ancient paradigm that the creator God actively rules over his creation. Who is he? This is Ray. When he began to rule that which he had made, means that Ray began to appear as a king, as one who was before the liftings of Shu had taken place. Now here we have the, the evidence that these subsidiary gods had taken part in the creation in the Egyptian paradigm. We should not accept this as religion. Before the air god, Shu, had lifted heaven apart from earth is what was called the liftings of Shu. When he was on the hill, which is in Hermopolis, and, and this is a huge flaw in, in, in all of these pagan imaginings and inscriptions, that because they imagine the, um, the earth to be formed and separated from the heaven, when the so-called God is standing on a hill, right? And, and, and doing that, they're actually using the name of the local temple which originated the incantation because they would advertise themselves in that way. If this was in another city, there would be the name of another city there. Atom Ray began his creation upon a primeval hill arising out of the abysmal waters, which were called Nun. In this version of the, of, of the incantation, the hill is located in Hermopolis, which was an, an ancient cult center. Any important cult center was regarded by the Egyptians as potentially a place of creation and therefore had its own hill of creation symbolized in its holy of holies, in its temple. I am the great God who came into being by himself. Who is he? The great God who came into being by himself is water. He is none, the father of the gods. Now, that would not be correct if we compared it to a lot of other Egyptian inscriptions, but an alternate reading in some of the copies of, of, of this particular inca incantation has, he is Ray, the father of the gods, which makes more sense compared to e even to other lines here, because it goes on to say, he who created his names, the Lord of the Enead, who is he? He is Ray, who created the names of the parts of his body, which were the other gods. That is how these gods who follow him came into being. And the first utterance of a name in the Egyptian mythography was considered the act of creation. When Atum Re named the parts of his body, his Enead, the nine gods of his immediate family, were said to have come into being. I am he among the gods who cannot be repulsed. Who is he? He is Atom, who is in his sun disk. Atom was seen as dwelling in the sun. So the sun was referred to as Ray, and the sun itself came to be perceived as the creator god. 
another version of the inscription has, he is Ray when he arises on the eastern horizon of heaven. And of course, that would be a reference to the sun also. The eternally rising sun cannot be destroyed. So it says, I am he among the gods who cannot be repulsed. I am yesterday while I know tomorrow. Who is he? As for yesterday, that is Osiris. As for tomorrow, that is Ray, on the day on which the enemies of the All-Lord are annihilated, and his son Horus is made ruler. The yesterday of death is associated with Osiris, the god of the dead. The tomorrow of rebirth is associated with the ever-rising sun and with the accession of Horus, to the rule of his father, Osiris. The continuation of the text is not translated here, so I can't continue. As an aside, in Greek mythology, Zeus, who was their god, was the son of Kronos, a name later interpreted as meaning time. Ostensibly, Zeus overcomes his father, time, by force to rule the world for eternity. But Kronos was also portrayed as one of the titans who were cast down to Tartarus. So what seems to be the purer original meaning may have been obscured with later embellishments. What we see here in this inscription is that the ancient Egyptian sun worship was associated with the worship of the creator god, whom the sun came to represent. And the concept that the sun was indestructible also facilitated the encapsulation of the notion of the eventual destruction of all of the enemies of that god. So the Egyptians believed that the creator god had enemies. The Egyptians also believed that the son of the creator god, who can also therefore be considered the son of the sun, would, on some uncertain tomorrow, come to rule over the creation in the place of his father once those enemies were destroyed. Later in the series, we hope to have a discussion on Christ as the light of the world, which is certainly an analogy made by the real God in response to these ancient pagan beliefs. And they go all the way back to earliest Egypt. The next part of this presentation, we discuss a text described as the repulsing of the dragon and the creation. And it will describe for us the Egyptian view of the nature of the enemies of the creator God, which were also seen as the enemies of the Pharaoh when this particular text was written. From the introduction to the text found in Ancient Near Eastern Texts on page 6, and I quote, momentarily I needed a drink, The text, this text employed myth for rituals and magical recitation. A great number of these early Egyptian texts were actually magical incantations. 
and and um, we see the Egyptian fascination with magic was um, what was heavily presented in the Exodus account when Moses stood before the Pharaoh. This text employed myths for ritual and magical recitation. In Egyptian belief, the ship of the sun god Ray made a journey through the skies above by day and the skies below by night. Every night, so hell is actually in China, right? Every night the ship faced the peril of destruction from a demon lurking in the underworld. underworld. The demon's name was Apophis. An important part of the ritual of Egyptian temples was the repulsing of this dragon, dragon demon. The ideas are connected here. And thus the repulsing of the perils which might face nation or people. The following ritual is an extract from a papyrus containing a group of texts for which the general heading is the beginning of the book of the overthrowing of Apophis the enemy of Ray, and the enemy of King Wen-Nafer. Now, there's a, um, an exclamation throughout these Egyptian texts. Every time a king or a pharaoh is mentioned, and it's life, prosperity, health, with an exclamation point. I'm going to omit them when I read this tonight. The enemy of the king, when Nofer, the justified, performed in the course of every day in a temple of Amon-Re, lord of the thrones of the two lands, presiding over Karnak. So this particular version of this inscription is from the Egyptian empire after the Middle Kingdom or perhaps in the Middle Kingdom. It's, it's dated below. A footnote here in, in ancient Near Eastern text states that when Nofer is a name for Osiris, as we've read in the last inscription, one definition of the name we have located elsewhere is eternally good. Here the name seems to refer to a particular pharaoh and not to Osiris. And others that I've read about this inscription from, have made this assumption. Yet, since this is an incantation, and since Osiris is lord of the underworld, it is possible that the god is being addressed as a king. We point this out because in Egyptian inscriptions, whenever the name, whenever the, the name of a living pharaoh is used, there is that exclamatory phrase, life, prosperity, health, immediately following it, as if the, the, the blessing must accompany every mention of the name of the king. So we see that very frequently in Egyptian writings. It'll make a reference to a pharaoh, then we have a, an exclamation, life, prosperity, health, interrupting the text before it continues with the story. To continue quoting this introduction to this text, the particular interest of the section given below is that it adds to these spells against Apophis, a statement about creation. The text is preserved in the papyrus Brenner-Rind in the British Museum, 
which may have come from Thebes. They're really not certain. The present manuscript is dated to about 310 B.C. Now, that's pretty late, right? And it goes on to explain. But the text makes a deliberate attempt to preserve a language 2,000 years older than that date. So it's ostensibly a copy of much earlier texts. There is no doubt that the basic material derives from a relatively early period. The introduction goes on to inform us that Sir Wallace Fudge preserved photographs of the text and both were published at a British museum. From the text of the inscription, and again with some of the provided notes and some of our own, the book of the knowing of the creations of Ray and of overthrowing Apophis, which was the, um, the serpent, the dragon in the sky. The words to be spoken, and this is an incantation. The words which follow, that was the title. The words which follow really were really spoken originally as a magical ritual. The All-Lord said, after he had come into being, I am he who came into being as Kepre. Now, now let me state, and, and there's actually a couple of ancient Egyptian inscriptions which relate this. Atom, or Kepre, or Re, Atom Re, um, that they're all the same deity, that they're all envisioned as being the same God. And, and, and that deity had many names, and it had a secret name, according to some of these ancient myths, which nobody could know. So the Jews, um, well, when they wrote the Talmud, they must have got that idea from the Egyptians, right? I am he who came into being as Kepri. Kepri was the morning sun god, conceived as a scarab beetle. In the following context, there is a play on the name Kepri in the word Keper, which means to come into being. So if the same God is Kepri, and, and it comes from a word Keper, which means to come into being, this evokes a comparison. And remember, this, is, that this original text came or is said to have come from some of the earliest Egyptian writings, 2300 B.C., this evokes a comparison to the name of Yahweh in the Bible. Yahweh, the Hebrew Ketogrammaton, stands for the idea of the Eternal One, one who came into being on his own and lasts for eternity. When I had come into being, being itself came into being. And all beings came into being after I came into being. So we have a riddle, right? Many were the beings which came forth from my mouth. So we have the idea that creation was effected by the commanding utterance of the Creator God, which is also identical to the idea expressed in Scripture. Before heaven came into being, before earth came into being, before the ground and creeping things had been created in this place, I put together some of them in none as weary ones, none being the primordial ooze. And there's a play here on the name none, the primordial 
waters in which creation took place, and the word menu, which which means the weary. It's usually a designation of the dead, but here, in this myth, it refers to those in inchoate pause, meaning people that were not yet fully developed, as if the creator was busy in a workshop and had a bunch of um, half-made people. Before I could find a place in which I might stand, and some of the texts, copies of this incantation have a different reading that they um, had this happening on a primeval hill arising out of the waters of none. And and that idea, too, can be compared to the Hebrew Scriptures, for which the um, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5. It seemed, just, it seemed advantageous to me in my heart. I planned with my face, and I made, in concept, every form when I was alone, before I had spat out what was shoe, before I had sputtered out what was tefnut, the first two children of the creator god were Shu, the air god, and Tethnut, the goddess of moisture. The statement of their ejection into being contains plays on the words in the Egyptian language with their names and with the verbs. Like the Hebrew language and its creation accounts, those of the Egyptian also seem to have been formed the, the words of the Egyptian language also seem to have been formed in concert with the names of the elements of the creation. And before any other had come into being who could act with me, I planned in my own heart, and there came into being a multitude of forms of beings, the forms of children and the forms of their children, now, I'm going to admit a graphic sentence on how some of these came into being. And it says, Then I spewed with my own mouth. And, and, and a footnote explaining the preceding sentences, including the one which we omitted, the graphic one, says here that there is a fusion of two myths, creation by self-pollution and creation by ejection from the mouth. It, it's sort of like a profane version of the Genesis 1 account. I spat out what was Shu, and I sputtered out what was Tefdut. It was my father, Nun, who brought them up, and my eye followed after them since the ages when they were distant from me. And, and this is a reference to another myth, in which it was Tefnut and Shu who went out after the wandering eye of Ray. And, and there's a myth about the wandering eye of Ray, which we will get to sooner or later tonight. After I had come into being as the sole god, there were three gods besides me, Nun, Shu, and Tefnut. I came into being in this land, whereas Shu and Tefnut rejoiced in none in which they were. This is another problem with paganism. If, if this God came into being in the land, and the land hadn't really been created yet, that's a problem. 
I guess they didn't realize that. <laughs> I'm imagining they may have had an explanation for that, but I couldn't imagine what it is. They brought to me my eye with them. After I had joined together my members, I wept over them. Apparently, Ray wept when he found that his eye was missing from his body. He made a substitute eye, which displeased his missing eye when it returned to him. The labored point of the context is a play on the words remit, meaning tears, and ramet, meaning mankind, an explanation of the human creation. He wept over his members after he joined them together. And it goes on to say in the inscription, that is how men came into being from the tears which came forth from my eye. It was angry with me after it returned and found that I had made another eye in its place, having replaced it with the glorious eye which I had made. Then I advanced its place on my head. Ray appeased the angry eye by making it the Urahias and placing it on his forehead. The Urahias was the serpent which the Egyptian pharaohs wore on their forehead as the symbol of rule. And after it had ruled this entire land, its rage fell away to its roots, for I had replaced what had been taken away from it. I came forth from the roots. And the writer makes a note here, the translator makes a note here, that this is an obscure or corrupt statement on the creation of vegetation. In the next sentence, the among them may refer to plant life, I personally don't necessarily agree with that interpretation of the translator, but I'll read it. I came forth from the roots, and I created all creeping things and whatever lives among them. Then Shu and Tefnut brought forth Geb and Nut. Then Geb and Nut brought forth Osiris, Horus, Kenti and Erti, Seth, Isis, and Nephthys from the body. The race is seen as a single body. One of them after another, and they brought forth their multitudes in this land. Now Shu and Tefnut, the children of Atamre, were miraculously brought into being when he sneezed. But their children, Geb, which means earth, and Nut, which means sky, were normally born from the body as were also the divine children of Geb and Nut. Thus we have the Enead, the nine ruling gods of the Egyptians, but Horus was an added member. He was added later. The context now continues by pointing out how these created beings were to use their magic against the demon enemy of Re. The enemy was characterized as a dragon or serpent. What we have seen here is that the eye, a member of the body of the creator God, strays off and is replaced after it has gone astray. Then, once it is replaced, it returns and is angered by the presence of the replacement. Upon its being angered, the creator God 
makes it the ruler of the land and gives it a place of preeminence on his forehead above his other eyes. That place of preeminence was, however, represented in Egyptian culture by a serpent. It's called a Eurahius from the Greek, from the Greek references to it. A Eurahius is an actually an adjective describing something which stands on its tail. A snake, when it's in a position to attack, stands on its tail. We cannot but help to compare this account of the wandering eye which gains preeminence to the accounts of Cain, Abel, and Seth. The wandering of Cain, the land of Nod. The word Nod means wandering. The representation of Cain's descendants as serpents, the connection of demons to serpents, and the idea that Cain would have possession of rulership until all the enemies of God are destroyed, and they're all found in Scripture. While the parallels to these biblical concepts are not exact, they are very close and very intriguing once we get to the oldest Greek mythology, which is, um, I'm sorry, Egyptian. I keep making that mistake. Egyptian mythology, which is hard to get at because even this text from the 3rd century B.C., even though it's believed by the language and the constructions used in it to be from the 23rd century, the 24th century B.C., it's hard to find enough Egyptian inscriptions consistently old enough to show us only the oldest of Egyptian religion. To return to the text, when these gods, rich in magic, spoke, it was the very spirit, the Egyptian word is ka, it was the very spirit of magic, for they were ordered to annihilate my enemies. Ray is speaking, by the effective charms of their speech. And I sent out these who came into being from my body to overthrow that evil enemy. He is one fallen to the flame, a pophis, with a knife on his head. He cannot see, and his name is no more in this land. I have commanded that a curse be cast upon him. I have consumed his bones. I have annihilated his soul in the course of every day. I have cut the vertebrae at his neck, severed with a knife which hacked up his flesh and pierced into his hide. And the detailed narration of the destruction of the serpent Apophis continues ad nauseum, including the activities of various gods who acted in defense of rays. Only extracts are given here. I have taken away his heart from its place, his seat and his tomb. I have made him non-existent. His name is not. His children are not. He is not and his family is not. He is not and his false door is not. And a note here says, destruction involves killing and also prohibition of maintenance offerings at the false door of a tomb. And I would say that this is why the incantation seems to have been de designed for an earthly pharaoh, 
a pharaoh who has overthrown an enemy predecessor and portrays such an event with terms and references which are valid in describing Egyptian religious beliefs. In other words, some pharaoh used these religious beliefs for his own propaganda. He is not, and his heirs are not. His age shall not last, nor shall his seed knit together, and vice versa. That's what it says in the text. His soul, his corpse, his state of glory, his shadow, and his magic are not. His bones are not, and his skin is not. He is fallen and overthrown. See thou, O Ray, hear thou, O Ray. Behold, I have driven away thine enemy. I have wiped him out with my feet. I have spat upon him. Ray is triumphant over thee, or over his fallen enemy. There are variations in the, in the reading. Drive thou away, consume thou, burn up every enemy of the Pharaoh, whether dead or living. And these exorcisms against the enemy of the supreme God were deemed to be effective also against the enemies of the God King. The Pharaohs imagined themselves to be Ray on earth and therefore God Kings. Thus shalt be in thy shrine. Thou shalt journey in the evening bark. Thou shalt rest in the morning bark. Thou shalt cross thy two heavens in peace. There was an under heaven in Egyptian cosmology to correspond to the heaven above. They could have just guessed that the, the earth was round, right? In the preceding clauses, the two barks of the sun have been reversed. The sun should go to rest in the evening bark for his journey through the under heaven. Thou shalt be powerful. Thou shalt live. Thou shalt be healthy. Thou shalt make thy states of glory to endure. Thou shalt drive away every enemy by thy command. For these have done evil against Pharaoh. With all evil works, all men, all folk, all people, all humanity, and so on, the Easterners of every desert and every enemy of Pharaoh, whether dead or living, whom I have driven away and annihilated, thou dissolvest, fallen Apophis. Ray is triumphant over thee, Apophis. Pharaoh is triumphant over his enemies. And, and these incantations would be repeated. This spell is to be recited over Apophis, drawn on a new sheet of papyrus in a green color, and put inside a box on which his name is set. This is Egyptian magical incantation. These instructions are set aside separately. He being tied and bound and put on fire every day, wiped out with thy left foot, and spat upon four times in the course of every day. This is how this incantation was to be recited by the ancient priests in Egypt. Thou shalt say as thou puttest him on the fire, meaning the box with the name on it, 
Ray is triumphant over the Oapophis. Horus is triumphant over his enemy. Pharaoh is triumphant over his enemies. Now, and now it's written these names of every male and female who is to be overthrown, of whom thy heart is afraid. That is, every enemy of Pharaoh, whether dead or alive, and the names of their fathers, and the names of their mothers, and the names of their children, inside the box. They are to be made in wax and put on a fire, following the name of Apophis, the serpent, and burned up at the time when Ray shows himself. Thus thou shalt do in the first time at the height of the sun, and again when Ray sets in the west, when the sunlight is fleeing from the mountain. These things are in truth more advantageous to thee than any other procedure. This is supposed to be magic, right? It will go on well with him who does them on earth or in the necropolis. Because the enemies of the creator God were seen as enemies of the Pharaoh, it is certain that here we have an instance where religious traditions were borrowed for the purposes of contemporary propaganda. The enemies of the Pharaoh became enemies of the creator God. However, the nature of the earlier myths themselves are still revealed in that propaganda. Since this is a magic spell which had application on the scale of creation in religious tradition and on the scale of the kingdom in the civil arena, meaning in political propaganda, the enemies of the creator God were seen as being on the part and sharing a fate with the Apophis serpent, the serpent who every evening sought to destroy the Creator God, and we will see that soon. The next part of this presentation will discuss a similar text described as the repulsing of the dragon, and it will provide for us the Egyptian view of a battle played out on a daily basis between the Creator God and his enemy. From the introduction to the text found in Ancient Near Eastern Texts, pages 11 and 12, and I quote, when the boat of the sun entered the western darkness at evening, it faced the peril of a dragon or serpent which might destroy the sun. Then it was the function of the god Seth to repel this beast so that the sun might cross the underworld by night and be reborn in the morning. In like manner, man should survive death and be reborn. The text is taken from Middle Kingdom Coffins and survived into the Book of the Dead. So you could find this text in the Book of the Dead. The title of the text is Not Dying Because of a Snake. Going in and out of the western doors of heaven flourishing upon earth on the part of a living or dead soul, knowing the Western souls, and the title is a rubric, we won't read the part knowing the Western souls. It's quite long and not a part of the reason for our presentation here. 
one element about this is that it's an incantation said to protect the dead from serpents. The author believes it was made to protect the dead who were buried in the ground from serpents. I, I don't see that in the text. I think it was just a humanist perspective on the text. The title evokes a passage from the Wisdom of Solomon, where it says in chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil, death came into the world, and they that hold of his side do find it. Death came into the world because of the snake, a serpent. But through Christ, we overcome that death. We are only going to read the first part of this section, relying with not dying, I'm sorry, referring to not dying because of a snake and going in and out of the western doors of heaven. The Western souls, knowing the Western souls, which we are not going to read, it will only be noted that the Western souls in that portion of the incantation are enumerated as Ray, Sobek, who's called the Lord of Baku, and Set, who's called the Lord of Life. From the text of the inscription, with some of the provided notes and some of our own, I know that mountain of Baku upon which heaven rests and, and the mountain is in the far western limits of the earth. The Greeks perceive that to be the shoulders of Atlas. It is of Tiat stone, 300 rods in its length and 120 rods in its width, and that would probably be about 10 miles by 4 miles. Sobek, Lord of Baku, is on the east of this mountain. His temple is of Carnelian, which may refer to the red of sunset. Sobek was a crocodile god and a western god in the Egyptian pantheon. A serpent is on the brow of that mountain, 30 cubits in its length, 3 cubits of the front thereof being of flint. I know the name of that serpent, he who is on the mountain that he may overthrow is his name. Now at the time of the evening it shall turn its eye against Ray. Then there shall come a halt among the crew, the crew which steered and rowed the boat that was imagined to hold the sun across the sky, right? Then there shall come a halt among the crew and great stupefaction in the midst of the journey, the journey of the sunbar through the western skies. The gaze of the serpent is said to be fascinating. Then Seth shall bend himself in its direction. The speech which he says is magic. I stand beside thee so that the journey may progress again. O thou whom I have seen from afar, close thou thine eye. I have been blindfolded, I and the male. 
Now, there's a pun on the word tiam or blindfold and ta or male. If the passive had been blindfolded, is correct, and, and it's not really known. Seth has taken measures against the hypnotic stare of the serpent. But a variant text says, I have bound thee, suggesting that we should read, I have blindfolded you. Cover thy head, so that thou may be well, and I may be well. I am the rich in magic. It has been given to me to use against thee. What is that? It is being an effective personality. The question and answer are probably a gloss inserted for the mortuary purposes of the text. What, for the benefit of a dead man, is this magic against the destructive serpent? It is that the funerary ritual has made the dead man an ak, A-K-H, meaning an effective being in the afterworld. O oh, thou who goest upon his belly, thy strength belongs to thy mountain. Whereas, behold me, when I go off by myself, thy strength will be with me, for I am he who lifts up strength, and the serpent's effective power is not its own and it may be easily carried off by Seth. I have come that I might despoil the earth gods, the earth gods who have the form of serpents. And here we see that there is a greater meaning to the myth that may not be fully evident to a reader of these fragmentary Egyptian inscriptions. Seth has come that he might despoil the earth gods, who have the form of serpents. O Ray, may he who is in his evening, meaning Ray himself, be gracious to me when we have made the circuit of heaven, but thou, the serpent, art in thy fetters. That is what was commanded about thee previously. Then Ray goes to rest in life. And it may be evident from these inscriptions that the Egyptians envisioned a battle played out in heaven every night when the sun crossed the sky, which they represented with the sun god Ray and his son Seth against the serpent Apophis. Yet on earth, there were so-called earth gods who had the form of serpents. And the text was actually a magical incantation seeking protection from these. When Seth overcomes the serpent, the serpent is depicted as being in fetters, in chains. I would like to cite one more reference in relation to this topic, and that is a hymn to Amun Re which had its origins from a later period under the Egyptian empire of the 13th to 17th dynasties. Or, as the conventional interpreters dated the dynasties, a little earlier from 1775 to 1575 B.C. This hymn like the other inscriptions selected for this program, is a good representative 
of Egyptian religion. From parts 9 and 10 of the hymn, and I quote, The soul came, like the fluid of the gods, with many names, the, the reference to the many names of Ray or Atom or Kepri, with many names unknown in number, rising in the eastern horizon and going to rest in the western horizon. So this soul king, the fluid of the gods, with many names unknown in number, is the sun, or represented by the sun, who overthrows his enemies, reborn early every day, Toth lifts up his two eyes, which were seen as the sun and the moon, and, and the myths of Egypt were already permuting under the empire, and satisfies him with his effective deeds. The gods rejoice in his beauty. He whom his apes exalt at dawn, apes warm themselves in the sun's rays. It is here inscription, I would have thought it referred to Negroes. I might be able to explain that tonight. Bark and the morning bark. They cross none in peace for thee. Thy crew is in joy when they see the overthrow of the rebel. And earlier in the hymn, the Apophis dragon and the enemies of Amon-Re in general are called Rebels, the enemies of God, are called rebels against God. His body licked up by the knife. Fire has devoured him. His soul is more consumed than his body. That dragon, his power of motion is taken away. The gods are in joy. The crew of Ray is in satisfaction, meaning the men on the sun bark. Heliopolis is in joy. For the enemies of Atom, Atom, Ray, same being, are overthrown. Karnak is in satisfaction. Heliopolis is in joy. The heart of the Lady of Life, which is an epithet for some goddess, is glad. For the enemy of her Lord is overthrown. The enemies here of the Creator God are depicted as serpents, and the serpents are also depicted as rebels. The fate of the serpent and of all the enemies of the Creator God is that they are to be destroyed in the fire. The recording of the Greek myths followed these Egyptian writings by over a thousand years. Yet there are certain legends that fit into the same scenario which the Egyptian writings portray. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to read from Strabo's Geography, from Book 13, Chapter 4, Paragraph 6, where he says, But Pindar associates the Pithecuse, which lie off the Kinian territory, as also the territory in Sicily, with the territory in Calicia, for he says that Typhon lies beneath Etna. And Strabo, quoting Pindar, says, Once he dwelt in a far, famed Calician cavern. Now, however, his shaggy breast is overpressed by the sea, girt shores above Kamahi and by Sicily. And again, round about him lies Etna with her haughty fetters. 
And again, but it was Father Zeus that once amongst the Arimi, by necessity, alone of the gods, smote monstrous Typhon of the 50 heads. But some understand that the Syrians are Arimi, who are now called the Aramaeans, and that the Colicians in Troy, forced to migrate, settled again in Syria and cut oil for themselves from Syria, cut off for themselves from Syria what is now called Colicia. And what we have here is the Greek tale of Zeus casting the dragon out of heaven, the Typhon, the serpent. From Strabo's Geography, Book 16, Chapter 2, referring to Antiochia, the same Antioch as that in the New Testament. The Orontes River flows near the city. This river has its sources in Kola, Syria, and then, after flowing underground, issues forth again, and then proceeding through the territory of the Apamayans into that of Antiochia, closely approaches the later city and flows down to the sea near Seleucia. Though formerly called Typhon, its name was changed to that of Orontes, the man who built the bridge across it. Here somewhere is the setting of the mythical story of Typhon's stroke by lightning and of the mythical story of the Arimi, of whom I have already spoken. was a dragon when struck by the bolts of lightning fled in search of the descent underground that he not only cut the earth with furrows and formed the bed of the river but also descended underground and caused the fountain to break forth to the surface and the river got its name from this fact what Strabo is relating is Zeus's casting of the dragon down to earth and destroying it. Which we find in Greek mythology, but not in Egyptian, where in Egyptian mythology, the dragon or the serpent fights with the creator God every day in heaven. Hesiod, the Greek poet, lived several hundred years before Strabo. Actually, he lived about 700 years before Strabo, and about 200 or perhaps 300 years before Pindar, the poet who Strabo quoted in relation to the Typhon serpent. I'm going to read from Hesiod's Theogony. We're going to read from Theogony later in the series in, in relation to the... Um, the giants and, and, and the sources of the Greek gods and, and the, um, the gods who come down from heaven to earth and rape women, sort of like Genesis 6. From Hesiod's Theogony, beginning at line 819, and I quote, But when Zeus had driven the titans from heaven, huge earth bare her youngest child, Typhoeus, actually, 
of the love of Tartarus, by the aid of golden Aphrodite, Typhoeus is the Typhon of Strabo, so I will use the name Typhon for the balance of this reading. Strength was with his hands in all that he did, and the feet of the strong were untiring. From his shoulders grew a hundred heads of a snake, a fearful dragon, in Pindar, it was only 50. It was reduced to 50 in 300 years. With dark, flickering tongues, and from under the brows of his eyes, and his marvelous heads flashed fire, and fire burned from his heads as he glared. And there were voices in all his dreadful heads, which uttered every kind of sound unspeakable. For at one time they made sound such, as, such that the gods understood but at another, the noise of a bull bellowing aloud in proud, ungovernable fury. And at another, the sound of a lion, relentless of heart. And at, a, at another, sounds like whelps, wonderful to hear. And at another, he would hiss, so that, so that the high mountains re-echoed. And, a truly, and truly, a thing past help would have happened on that day, and he would have come to reign over mortals and immortals. In other words, the serpent, Typhon, was close to coming to reign over mortals and immortals. Immortal, immortals, I'm sorry. Had not the father of men and gods, a reference to Zeus, been quick to perceive it. But he thundered hard and mightily, and the earth around resounded terribly, and the wide heaven above, and the sea and ocean streams, and the nether parts of the earth. Great Olympus reeled beneath the divine feet of the king as he arose, and the earth groaned thereat. So in Greek mythology, and Hesiod is among the earliest Greek mythology, the serpent Typhon nearly came to rule over men, but the god Zeus found out the plan and destroyed him. Now, of course, this is idealistic. It's not scripture, but it's what the ancient Greeks believed. Great Olympus reeled beneath the feet of the divine king as he rose, and the earth groaned thereat. And through the two of them, meaning Zeus and Typhon, the serpent, the hundred-headed serpent, and through the two of them, heat took hold on the dark blue sea, through the thunder and lightning, and through the fire from the monster, and the scorching winds, and blazing thunderbolt. The whole earth seethed, and sky and sea, and the long waves raged along the beaches round about, the rush of the deathless gods, and there arose an endless shaking. Hades trembled, where he rules over the dead below. Hades was actually seen originally as the god of the underworld. Tartarus was the underworld. And the titans, the giants who were cast down to Tartarus, and the titans under Tartarus, who live with Kronos because of the unending clamor and the fearful strife. Now, this word Tartarus was the same word 
that Peter used in his second epistle to describe the casting down of the fallen angels into Hades, the angels that sinned. So when Zeus had raised up his might and seized his arms, thunder and lightning and lurid thunderbolt, he leaped from Olympus and struck him and burned all the marvelous heads of the monster about him. But when Zeus had conquered him and lashed him with strokes, Typhon was hurled down a main wreck, so that the huge earth groaned, and flame shot forth from the thunder-stricken lord in the dim, rugged glens of the mount. When he was smitten, a great part of the huge earth was scorched by the terrible vapor and melted as tin melts when heated by men's art in channeled crucibles, or as iron, which is the hardest of all things, is softened by glowing fire in mountain glens and melts in the divine earth through the strength of Hephaestus. Hephaestus was the god of smiths. Even so, then the earth melted in the glow of the blazing fire, and the bitterness of his anger, Zeus cast him, meaning the serpent Typhon, into wide Tartarus. And from Typhon came boisterous winds which blow damply, except Nautus and Boreas and clear Zephyr. The ancient Greeks imagined the bad winds on the Mediterranean to come from the serpent god in Tartarus. These are a God-sent kind, meaning the good winds, Nautus and Boreas and Zephyr, and a great blessing to men. But the others blow fitfully upon the sea. Some rush upon the misty sea and work great havoc among men with their evil raging blasts. For varying with the season they blow, scattering ships and destroying sailors. And men who meet these upon the sea have no help against the mischief. Others again over the boundless flowering earth spoil the fair fields of men who dwell below, filling them with dust and the cruel uproar. But when the blessed gods had finished their toil and settled by force their struggle for honors with the titans, they pressed far-seeing Olympian Zeus to reign and rule over them by earth's prompting. So he divided their dignities amongst them. The Egyptians believe that their creator God struggles in heaven with the dragon every day. Now, I would not accept pagan Greeks or Hesiod as a source of religious belief. But if pagan beliefs reflected by Hesiod grew, out of ancient tradi traditions, and have a common source with Scripture, which is certainly apparent in many ways, then the Greeks believed that the dragon was cast out of heaven and into Tartarus. Understanding certain concepts from the ancient world helps us to understand how early man perceived the origins of people, the beginnings of royalty, the reason for religion, and the various other forces manipulating men and nations throughout time and history. They also help us to understand the historical and literary context in which many of the idioms, the metaphors, 
and the analogies used in Scripture were understood in the first century. And to the participants and the recorders of our New Testament accounts, so tonight's just the beginning, we have seen that the serpent was the symbol of royalty in ancient Egypt and how that was said to be the wandering eye, the son that got promoted because he was angry when he came back and he had been replaced. But the serpent was also a symbol of royalty among the Assyrians, among the ancient Babylonians, and even among the Hittites. So this is where we will pick up this theme for the next portion of this presentation of primordial two-seed line. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night.